Welcome to the Bountiful Water Podcast. I'm your host, John Briggs. Here at Retigo Labs, we are an authorized dealer of Crusader water systems. We've got the best test, so we went out to find the best water treatment system in the world, and we found it in Crusader Water Systems. Retigo tests for more than a dozen things that affect your water quality, and from that test, we create a comprehensive profile. Now, with that profile, we work with Crusader Water Systems to create a custom system designed just for your water. It may surprise you to know that our tests reveal that each home has different water chemistry. The city sends you the same water as your neighbors. But once that gets into your home, it changes as it flows through the different combination of your plumbing and fixtures and treatment attempts. The chemistry changes. You may have wondered why you don't like how your tap water tastes, but maybe you go to a neighbor and theirs seems to taste just fine. Or maybe you replace water heaters all the time, yet your neighbor doesn't. It's not bad luck, it's just chemistry. Let Retigo Labs take care of the chemistry so you can take care of your family and together we can have perfect water. Today we'll spend a few minutes telling you another story, a water story that's also about other things. July of 1914 marked the beginning of what was first called the Great War. That was later changed to World War I. Now this grim struggle went on for four and a half years. It was the mark of new innovations and new terrors for the soldiers. Inevitably, the invention of the automobile opened up the possibility of how that could be used in war. The first tanks were created by Great Britain, and they saw combat just two years into the struggle. One year before saw the first use of poison gas on enemy troops. Airplanes were used to carry bombs. Machine guns were widely used. Submarines disrupted shipping, sinking three British cruisers in one hour at the beginning of the war. Now I share all this simply to give you an idea of the new terrors that were faced by those who fought in that war. Those kinds of things haunt soldiers for the rest of their lives. Knowing this, a group of military leaders who'd fought in the war got together in Paris just four months after the war ended. They enjoyed the first peaceful springtime in years. The purpose of their meeting was to form an organization they named the American Legion. They wanted an organization dedicated to helping the soldiers who'd fought in the war. They requested and received an official charter from Congress in 1919 as a patriotic organization. But this went well beyond a simple patriotic club. Through the American Legion's efforts, the U.S. Veterans Bureau was formed. Today we know this group as the Veterans Administration. Over time, the American Legion evolved from a group of war-weary veterans of World War I into one of the most influential nonprofit groups in the United States. They've been responsible for countless acts of service, but also helped pass important legislative bills. You may have heard of the GI Bill passed in 1944. That was a direct result of the Legion's efforts. Most of us are probably familiar with that bill that gave soldiers money for college. But it was much more than a free money for college program. For every dollar put into that program, the U.S. economy gets back $7 as veterans prosper. So that gives a little background to give context for us to now jump forward to 1975. During that year, the American Legion planned to celebrate America's bicentennial year. One of my earliest memories of Fourth of July celebrations was the bicentennial celebration of 1976. It seemed that everywhere you went, flags were flying and posters reminded us all to be grateful for America's 200 years of unprecedented freedoms. 
During that patriotic summer, more than 4,000 members of the Pennsylvania chapter of the American Legion got together. They booked a hotel just blocks away from Independence Hall. Independence Hall is where the Declaration of Independence had been signed 200 years before, so it was a perfect setting. The summer was hot and humid, but that was okay. The Bellevue Stratford Hotel where they stayed was built for luxury, so veterans relaxed in the hotel's air conditioning. July 21, 1976 marked the first day of the American Legion's annual convention. For four days, Legionnaires celebrated the bicentennial, sharing war stories and remembering the sacrifices made to allow them to have those 200 years of unprecedented freedom. By all measures, it was a successful convention. But within a few days, members of the American Legion's Pennsylvania chapter began making phone calls. It started out with a few saddened calls, but sadness quickly turned to fear. Over and over, calls came into the Legion headquarters with the news of the death of a number of convention-goers. By August 2nd, it was clear this wasn't simply bad luck. Twelve of the attendees had died, and three dozen more had been hospitalized. All of them had pneumonia-like symptoms, but tests for pneumonia came back negative. The symptoms were nearly the same in every case. Muscle aches, headaches, severe cough, diarrhea, muscles and chest pains, and fevers as high as 107 degrees. Most of those who got sick were American Legion members or their wives, but there were others. A bank teller who worked across the street from the hotel died. Another victim simply drove a bus filled with young people from the American Legion who had marched in a parade that was part of the celebration. No one knew why or how this was happening, but they knew it was localized around the American Legion Bicentennial Celebration. The news media came up with the scariest names they could think of. One newspaper called it the Killer Fever. Another came up with the Philly Killer. The name that finally stuck was Legionnaire's Disease. Public health officials made an attempt to calm fears, but that was a tough thing to do when people are dying. People were justifiably worried about another flu epidemic like the one that killed so many in 1918. There were people still alive that remembered what it was like. Speculation was all over the place. Earlier in the year, New Jersey had dealt with the swine flu outbreak, so maybe it was just that. A disease called parrot fever that spread by sick pigeons was another leading theory. Doctors tried antibiotics, but they didn't work. The only good news was that the disease didn't seem to be contagious, as one convention-goer had shared a room with two men who had died, but this guy didn't even show symptoms. The CDC launched the largest investigation in its history. A team of 20 CDC epidemiologists joined state health workers, and together they scoured hospital records and looked through autopsy findings. They kept laboratories open day and night since a continuous stream of helicopters flew in with blood and tissue samples. They interviewed Pennsylvania patients about every detail of their stay in the hotel. They wanted to know every move from where they had breakfast to how many times they rode in the elevator. Investigators checked into the Bellevue Stratford Hotel to search for clues. They looked at ice machines, checked the toothpicks, soap, shampoo, and towels. They crawled into the heating and cooling systems to take samples. They checked the kitchens in the off chance that it was simply severe food poisoning. Some even speculated that it was some sort of bioterrorism since anti-war protesters had previously threatened violence against military veterans. In the end, there seemed to be only a few common threads. Everyone had the same symptoms, 
and everyone appeared to have spent some time in either the hotel lobby or outside on the sidewalk. It wasn't much to go on, but that's all they had. Six months went by with no real idea of what had caused the disease. A few days after Christmas, the CDC microbiologist named Joseph McDade decided to cancel his vacation plans. He did this because he was thinking about the frantic nature of the investigation. He knew that in the initial rush to find the cause, slides from the samples hadn't been thoroughly examined. Most had been quickly scanned, hoping to find something obvious. He went back over these slides, carefully examining each one. He said it was like looking for a contact lens on a basketball court with your eyes four inches above the ground. A half hour into examining tissues taken from the lung of one of the victims, McDade found it. He found a bacterium he'd never seen before, which turned out to be what had caused the disease. The CDC named it Legionella pneumophilia. It took six months to find, but the CDC announced that they had found it. They determined that the Legionella bacteria thrived in hot weather and in cooling systems like the one on top of the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. Investigators believe that contaminated water vapor from the cooling system's fans settled on pedestrians on the sidewalk below. They also believed that the mist was sucked into the hotel lobby through a ground floor vent. Once in the lobby, all anyone had to do was breathe. The tiny infected water droplets were inhaled into the victim's lungs, marking an invisible death sentence. In the end, 200 people got sick, and 34 of them died. The CDC also started to realize that there were other outbreaks they hadn't been able to find a reason for that were probably caused by Legionnaire's disease. Two years earlier, members of the Odd Fellows held a convention at the same hotel and three attendees died. So why the history lesson on a disease that many of you may not have even heard of? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Think of the number of people infected at the 1976 convention and how many died. 200 people were infected and 34 of them died. That's 17%. That was a particularly high percentage, probably because most of the attendees were elderly. But we now know that the morbidity rate is around 10%. We just shut down most of the world for a disease we thought had a morbidity rate of 3%. The other reason we're talking about this right now is because of the pandemic shutdown we all just went through, and here's why. Bacteria is found naturally in freshwater environments. Small amounts of bacteria can enter homes and buildings through our water supply. This is usually not a problem as our excellent public health utility experts carefully introduce chlorine and other disinfectants into our water supply to keep it under control. The problem is that chlorine can be quickly consumed. If the bacteria load is too high, there's none left after just a few hours, so the water gets stagnant if it's not being used. Think about that. It takes only a few hours for the disinfectant in the water to disappear and a large number of this country's buildings have gone unused for over a year because of the pandemic shutdown. The lack of residual chlorine in buildings' water has become a potentially serious issue. The water sitting in those buildings becomes stagnant and could allow bacteria to colonize within the plumbing. These little colonies grow much faster than most people realize. Most bacteria doubles every 20 minutes. The colonies themselves aren't the real issue. It's when particularly nasty bacteria like Legionella joins the community. These communities of bacteria are buffets for the hungry Legionella. Like most living things, bacteria need food to eat and comfortable temperatures to thrive in. 
Legionella love temperatures between 68 and 120 degrees Fahrenheit. In an effort to save energy, guidelines were published encouraging homeowners and facilities managers to set hot water heaters to 120 degrees. Setting the water heaters to the lower settings saves energy, but 120 degree water and lots of bacteria to eat is a perfect environment for Legionella. That's like us sitting in the shade at the beach feasting on our favorite food. So a Legionella bacteria joins these little communities in a building's plumbing lines where they eat, reproduce, and grow. We didn't have to worry when just a few of these deadly bacteria pass through town, but in these optimal conditions, they're set to take over the whole community. When this happens, the likelihood of this deadly bacteria getting into places where people might encounter water vapor is greatly increased. That includes air conditioning systems, hot tubs, and showers, just to name a few. Breathing that water vapor allows the Legionella to enter someone's lungs where it causes Legionnaire's disease. With Legionnaire's disease on the rise, efforts have been made to figure out why it's increasing so much. No doubt the reasons are complex, and part of the reason is probably that it's been underdiagnosed in the past. The CDC estimates that the actual number of cases may be two times higher than what actually gets reported, and some experts believe that two times higher is a low number. There's probably a lot more. Another reason is thought to be unintended consequences of efforts to introduce green water devices. Many of them slow down the velocity of the water in plumbing. Higher velocities allow debris to be washed through the plumbing, carrying colonies of bacteria out. So when the water slow down, that doesn't happen. The first reaction most people have to hearing about something like this is to assume that some government agency will take care of the problem. That doesn't work for a simple reason. The government is not responsible for privately owned buildings. Most of us know that we're responsible for our own home's plumbing. If something is wrong with our plumbing, we don't expect a government agency to come and fix it. It's a little different in privately owned buildings because people work and shop in them, but knowing that, the CDC and EPA release guidelines for building owners to follow. If they follow the guidelines, everything should be fine. That being said, there are no mandates that require testing in buildings. Also, the only detailed guidance is provided by ASHRAE, a leading professional air and ventilation organization. You have to pay $100 for the detailed report from ASHRAE, and many facilities managers don't spend the money. Many others assume that the CDC guidelines are sufficient. I've read the guidelines the CDC and EPA put out. The problem I see with them is that the word flushing is used prominently throughout. They instruct the responsible party to be sure stagnant water is flushed out of the plumbing to keep fresh supplies of disinfected water in their plumbing system. That means that during the entire pandemic shutdown, a facilities manager should have flushed the water out of the entire building every day at the least, and maybe more since chlorine in the pipes is used up in just a few hours. They would have had to flush all the toilets, run all the faucets, and open main valves to allow every drop of water in the building to be replaced by new water. There may be a few more, I guess, but I've only actually heard of one facilities manager that did this, and it took him eight hours a day throughout the entire pandemic shutdown. In most buildings, that didn't happen, and bacteria were allowed to grow unchecked. So now you're dealing with large colonies of bacteria clinging to the pipe surface, creating what is known as biofilm. These large colonies of bacteria can't be removed by simply flushing the water anymore. 
They're just too big for normal levels of chlorine in the water supply to deal with. We've tested buildings where we know water sat stagnant month after month. We found bacteria levels greater than 10 to the 6 CFU a milliliter. In layman's terms, that's over a million colony forming units per milliliter. An easy way to picture a milliliter is that it's about the size of two dimes stacked on top of each other. Now think about how many dimes you'd have to stack just in one drink of water. And each stack has a million colony forming units in it. No thanks. That level of contamination can only be removed through aggressive treatment. That may seem like no big deal until you really start to think about it. No one can work in a building until the process is done so no work gets done. The disruption is huge, but it's probably doable since we've dealt with this kind of thing over the last year, shutting down buildings, sending people to work at home. But what about buildings where the public comes in and spends their money? All of that has to stop during the process and business owners lose large amounts of money. You may think that for a rich business owner, that should be easy. As someone who was a bank manager for several years, I can tell you that most of these guys have very tight margins, and if they miss a week of revenue, they can't pay to keep the building open. But in the end, it's got to be done. If Legionnaire's disease breaks out in your building, unpaid bills will be the least of your problem. But in the end, it's got to be done. If Legionnaire's disease breaks out in your building, unpaid bills will be the least of your problems. I think most building owners would do this if they really understood the problem. No one wants the death of someone on their conscience or the nightmare of the inevitable lawsuit that would follow. But most of them don't even know there's a problem. They assume someone in facilities management will take care of the issues like that, but those guys aren't aware of the problem either. Most facilities managers have a detailed water plan in place designed to make sure water is refreshed throughout the building regularly. But those plans were for normal times. That meticulous water management plan only worked when things were going well and you were using the building all the time. This last year has been anything but normal. As I said, the responsibility falls to the building owners who rely on facilities managers who most likely don't understand the seriousness of the issue. With a morbidity rate of 7-10%, to 10%, this lack of understanding is pretty scary. We've talked to some of these responsible parties in various buildings. It's been very difficult to communicate the seriousness of the issue. I've heard them say things like, I know the water doesn't taste very good, but it's never tasted that good. Others think we're simply exaggerating the issue, hoping we can capitalize on fear of an obscure issue or an obscure disease. I recently talked to an expert on this issue at the WQA convention in Las Vegas. He's run into the same problem. He said he's received panic phone calls from building owners he's warned who thought his warning was alarmist and the solution too expensive. They call with the news that a Legionella outbreak happened in their building and they say now they want to follow his recommendations. I immediately called you, they say. You were right. He tells them he shouldn't have been the first person they called. They should have first called their lawyer. They'll need him for what's coming since they chose to do nothing. It may be disruptive to your business, but what's the alternative? Doing nothing? If an outbreak occurs, you'll still have to spend the money, and on top of that, you'll have some extremely sick people who will wonder why nothing was done about something so potentially life-threatening. I personally know many good people who own these type of at-risk facilities. I'm confident if they really understood the seriousness of this issue, they'll do something about it. If all of this hasn't been enough to underscore the importance of this issue, then just think about this. 
The New York Times reported that last August, the CDC shut down several buildings they were leasing in Atlanta, Georgia. Why did they do it? They found Legionella in a cooling tower, as well as other water sources in these buildings. They weren't willing to risk keeping the buildings open until they disinfected them. If the CDC takes this seriously, we should probably listen. So please pass along this podcast to anyone you know so we can get the word out. Especially if you know anyone who is an owner or is in charge of a building that was shut down during the pandemic. It's important. And the best way to reach large numbers of people is for this message to be shared and shared again. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you so much for sharing this and doing your part to spread this important message. So that's all for today, but let's end with talking again about uh, what we do and why we do it. Retigo Labs developed a testing system that usually is only available through a expensive and slow national lab who give you a list of numbers and tell you nothing about it. Retigo Labs developed a test that can be done right inside your home that gives you detailed information. They create a comprehensive profile of the water for your home that shows you exactly what's going on in your home in the water chemistry right inside your pipes. Because we found with these tests that we ran that each home is different. The water chemistry in each home is different. So we take the detailed analysis and we give that to Crusader Water Systems who is able to custom design a system just for you. What I mean by custom design maybe isn't clear. You may be in an area that has high levels of magnesium and not as high levels of calcium. If that happens, we can adjust the resin beds so that it takes care of that. You may be in a place that has high levels of sulfate as well as calcium and magnesium. If that's the case, we can take care of that. And that's something that most water professionals don't do anything about is the sulfate. So we can create a custom system just for you so that you can have absolutely perfect water. The city sends you great water, but then the plumbing and fixtures inside your home changes the water chemistry, picks up things or leaves things behind. We can design a system that balances that water perfectly just for you so that you can have perfect water. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.